The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 8. Glory, Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind. You are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If you want to become my followers, you must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, O Christ. In this church year where Mark's gospel is our primary guide, we come today to a pivotal place in that gospel. It takes place about halfway in. I say that because we're coming to the end of chapter 8 here, and Mark's gospel is 16 chapters long. And the, the pivot being when Jesus here, for the very first time in the gospel of Mark, tells his disciples that he has got a cross to die on. And if they intend to follow him, they should not be, be surprised, but should rather expect, should know in advance that a cross of one sort or another and a death of one sort or another would be found in one way or another in their futures as well. It would prove to be true. Before we dig into this pivotal text, however, it will be helpful, as is so often the case, to remind ourselves of a little bit of context. A primary piece of big picture context I, I want to remind you of is one we spoke of several weeks ago as a prevalent theme in Mark's telling of the good news, that being the theme of what is generally called the messianic secret. What that refers to, as I told you a few weeks ago, is that though we, as readers of Mark's gospel today, there's no secret for us. Mark, right off the bat, Mark 1, verse 1, tells us exactly who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. We know that before we know anything. But so far in Mark's telling of the story, on the other hand, anyone in the story who's actually up and figured out who he was, every time was immediately told by Jesus to keep that a secret, not to tell anybody, which I told you a few weeks ago didn't mean not to tell anybody ever, although some Lutherans in history thought that was the case and have never told anyone about their faith. The, the meaning, rather, was not to tell anybody yet. The reason being that people had expectations heaped 
upon centuries of waiting for the Messiah to come. And these expectations were by and large glorious with the ways and means the world regards gloriously, which in most cases means, I mean, pretty much everyone was sure that the Messiah, when he came, would lead a glorious army that would gloriously drive out the Gentile Romans and their armies, drive them into the sea, saving the Jews from slavery to Rome, and once again making a purely Jewish nation great again. But Jesus, you see, had plans and ways and means to save the Jews and their Gentile enemies and us Gentiles and our enemies and all people, even all creatures, even creation itself from a far deeper and enduring bondage, that being our bondage to sin and sin's firstborn death. So a big picture reason he told those who named him the Messiah to keep quiet is that there were layers and layers of glorious messianic expectations that he wanted no part of. Now the immediate context. As we come to Mark 8, the only ones who have so far figured out that Jesus is who he is and who were therefore told immediately by Jesus not to tell anybody, so far the only ones that did that were, in Mark's words, demons or unclean spirits or those demonized by such, whether they were demonized spiritually or relationally or emotionally or physically. Some of us, of course, find such talk to be quite primitive. Others of us, on the other hand, find such talk to be truth-telling. For the truth is we know all too well our own demons and their debilitating effects sometimes on us spiritually, relationally, emotionally, and or physically. But whether we personally are yea or nay on this demon language, as we come to almost the middle of Mark's gospel, in the middle of chapter 8, it is only the demons and the demonized who have ever, as of yet, actually figured out and named aloud the truth of who Jesus truly is. Then comes Mark 8, 27 to 30. These are the four verses immediately before our scene for the day, and they really be, should be included. It's one story. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and others one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? And not a demon then. But Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. At which point Mark, being Mark, he of course immediately tells us that Jesus sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. That's the beginning, the first half of this pivotal passage halfway through the Gospel of Mark as the disciples, via their spokesperson, are at last in on the secret. But then comes our text for today, the second half of this scene, and the introduction to the second half of Mark's Gospel, I think, and the pivot I mentioned earlier, as Jesus now for the very first time tells them that he does not mean to end the suffering of the Jews under Rome, but rather 
means that there is suffering that he personally must suffer and a death that he personally must die. First time he says that. And Peter, Mark says, rebuked him. And the Greek word is a harsh one, as in he told Jesus to shut up, presumably about that defeatist kind of nonsense. As in, didn't you hear what I said, Jesus? You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. You didn't come to suffer. You came to end our suffering. At which point, what do you know? Jesus is the one who starts seeing the demonic again. As he now rebukes, shuts up, Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not... Your mind is not set on divine things, but on human things. It's the second time in Mark's Gospel that Mark says Jesus has an encounter with Satan. Do you remember the last time? It was just last week. In Mark chapter 1, where in the wilderness the encounter had been a longer one, 40 days long. But according to Matthew and Luke anyway, who gives some details that Mark doesn't, for the first time, the details are kind of the same. A cross? Oh, Jesus, you're the Son of God. You're meant for better things. Let me teach them to you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in a comment on this text in one of the books that some of us are reading for Lent, says that this scene shows us that from the very beginning, even the church, as represented here by Peter, upon whom Jesus said he would build his church, didn't want a Messiah who would turn toward suffering, but rather turn from it, to avoid it, and to take us with him away from it. But Jesus in the wilderness, and again now, will have no part of that and doesn't mince any words regarding that. The Son of Man must, he says, as in has to, he says, suffer and I, for the saving I came to do, he says, won't be, can't be, must not be instead of suffering and dying, but rather by suffering and dying. It has to be, he says. What's up with that, do you think? Why did he have to die? Well, 2,000 years of theology have been asking and answering that question as well as arguing about their answers to the question ever since he died. And the answers, including the Bible's early on answers, offered in places like Romans or Hebrews, for example, um, but continuing ever since, the answers have taken this statement about the necessity of his suffering and death and theologically turned it into one version or another of what is called a doctrine of the atonement. Atonement meaning that somehow in his death we are made one in our relationship with God in a way that we weren't before and doctrine meaning let's explain exactly how that works. As it turns out however there's not just one doctrine that either the church or even scripture land on as the agreed upon and complete and consensus final answer to the question of why exactly it is and how exactly it works that he had to die and that we, we in his death are somehow therefore given life. Some of the images 
and some of the doctrines um, in Scripture and elsewhere carry legal overtones, kind of a courtroom feel to them and a penal system feel to them as we were judged guilty by the divine legal system, but he then stepped in to serve our sentence. He did the time and finally even died the death. That's God's law says all sin must die. And since he did that for us, we are declared innocent. And clothed in innocence, we are clothed for heaven. Other images in Scripture, like the image of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we use this all the time, carry overtones of the old Jewish sacrificial system in which his perfect righteousness offered unto God, even unto death, somehow satisfied with the blood of the Lamb, God's insistence upon righteousness from us and for us. Another image in Scripture is the image of his death as, as some kind of a ransom, a ransom being something one pays to free someone who's being held captive, often most often against their will. And with the ransom paid... And presuming that all who had agreed to the terms of the ransoming then went on to honor their promises, the ransomed are then freed. The question left to be debated and argued about the then, then is to whom was the ransom paid? Was it paid to God? Or was it paid to the enslaver, the captor, the kidnapper of sinners? Was it paid to Satan? That seems unlikely to me. I'm quite sure there's no way in hell that Satan would honor his end of any transaction. That said, all of those images uh, are absolutely biblical. And in some ways, maybe many ways, including, I am sure, ways deeper than I personally can understand, I am convinced that all are true. But it seems to me also that they each, in their own ways, are insufficient, or if not insufficient, um, Confusing. I mean, just for example, couldn't God have just pardoned sinners by God's own free will rather than declaring Jesus' death to be bloody necessary for it all? Why was the blood necessary? Why did he have to die? Why did he say it must happen? Mark, the earliest gospel, and therefore the first actually to put this down in writing, offers literally no comment on that. No theological reflection. No doctrine of the atonement at all. He just says that that's what Jesus said. It was necessary, he said. He had to, he said. The Son of Man must, he said, suffer and die. Question, who musted him? Who insisted demanded his death. Who said, who says there's no other way? God? I may be dancing with heresy, uh, but I want to suggest that the answer to that question is yes and no. The must that I believe God did give him was a must God couldn't but give, that being the must, the necessity of love. For God is love, and therefore every imperative there is that is of God is by definition of love. 
But here's what the love of God knows. You don't defeat the ways of not God, which is to say the ways of fear and hate, which is to say the ways of the world, which is to say the ways that ever since the beginning have found it so much more tasty to file for divorce from love, which is to say sin. You don't defeat any of that by using the world's fearful and hateful and self-serving ways and means. Rather, if you are love and you are God, you know that you will defeat the way of sin, the way of Satan and the way of our demons by being God, which by definition is to say by being love. And it being love fighting that fight, Jesus' death would be necessary. Not because God demands it. God's only imperative is to love, but rather because sin will demand it. For sin hates knowing that love, if it has its way around here, will be the death of it. Sin hates love, knowing that love, if it has its way around here, will be the death of it. God's imperative is the imperative, the must of love. Knowing what the stakes are, that is to say, knowing who the enemy is, Jesus and the Father will then agree that he must die. For the only way in the end to avoid it would be to turn in the direction of either hate or fear. And love will do no such thing. And knowing, too, what the stakes are, that is to say, knowing, too, who their enemy is, the world, the power-hungry church and state, will join unholy hands to agree, to insist that he die, lest he be the death of them. So who, in the end, was it who would insist that he die? Who would declare that it must be the answer is everyone. For heaven and hell, church and state, righteousness and sin, you and I and all sinners would all in their own ways, all in our own ways, agree that he must die. Only two parties to the agreement, however, not church and state and not Peter either, at least not yet, but only two parties to the agreement, the Father and the Son, knew that his death would not be the end of him, but would rather be part of the plan. Remember what he said? It is necessary for the Son of Man to undergo great suffering, necessary to be rejected, necessary to be killed, but then, too, on the third day, on the other side of the suffering and death, to rise again. Love, in other words, not hate. Life, not death. Light, not darkness. Sacrifice, not coercion. Righteousness, not depravity. Mercy, not mastery. Forgiveness of sin, not enslavement of sinners, will win. And it will do so the only way that victory could be won, by loving. 
loving the world, loving sinners, loving you to death and back. So, so according to him, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Which is to say, since he's the one saying it, to love. And to do so even when it is costly. And to do so not because of what you will get for love, but because of what can be done, what can be accomplished, what victories can be won only by love. Amen.